Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud and to a panel of South Africa's best and most thoughtful journalists. And it's been quite a week for South Africa state-owned enterprises and their minister, Praveen Gordon. And I was struck by an advert in the media this week um, from the Minister of Public Enterprise, an invitation to apply for appointment to the boards of directors of the state-owned companies. Panel, are you going to put in an application, Ron Darby, to be on the board of a state-owned company? And which one? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, it would be quite an interesting tale for anyone else except for me. But, um, but this, um, for me, this heralds in the end maybe of cadre deployment. I'm thinking he's opening it up to everyone, all South Africans, while on, on the surface of it all, just to come in and get the best of South Africans running SOEs. So this May, but 2007 was the big cadre deployment move, the ANC push. And this is perhaps the whole... Tumamina now type of the vibe that the president sent in when he, on, on his first nation address and getting everyone who's interested to get in. Uh, myself personally, no, nah, I mean, but but it'd be a great challenge. I mean, ESCOM would be a great challenge for someone. Uh, it's a turnaround pr project. Actually, all of them are quite significant and interesting stories to get involved with. I, I would say for the smarter amongst us. So, so Ron Dobby, you're saying it's a signal. Yeah, um, I think they it's at the risk of, of putting themselves through the effort of, of having to read four zillion CVs, yeah. which they may actually find themselves having to do. It's much better. This, it's the importance of this you see as, as being the signal. Yeah, for the past ten years, it's all, all been about the president and his inner circle, who he's choosing, who's deciding, who's instead on these boards. This is, we, but I hope it's it's a sign of that. Look, it's open to everyone, and the best of South Africans get in there and get the SOEs fixed. And I mean, it's, it's a shift in sentiment. But before it's all cl uh, behind closed doors, not knowing what Zuma was thinking. And here's Ramaphosa trying to say, look, let's just put it out there and get the best of them. I mean, we have Mark Barnes running Postbank, who isn't quite an insider. And he was put there by Ramaphosa and, and protected, in a sense, over the past the last few years of Jacob Zuma. So now I'm going to take this as a positive signal. I just look. Let's clean up the SOEs and get the best of South Africa. And South Africa has some great executives sitting at home. And even those that were ousted by Zoomers and the, the big generations who sat at home have gone and done their own things to come back into the, the better ones anyway, to come back and get involved with SOEs. So I think it's a, it's a positive signal. Ray, is that going to happen? And are you lining up in the queue there? No, I'm definitely. <laughs> no, I, I, think it, I think it is. Maybe there is actually you know, also a need here to try and send a signal that technical skills are wanted. Mm. You know, we passed the point now fiddling around with the impression, the public impression that these corporations make. There's a big hole that's been dug and they've got to get out of it. And maybe it's just sending a signal to the business elite out there that, you know, we're actually open to you getting involved here. Yeah, it, does, it is quite specific, actually, yeah. about which kinds of qualifications. So maybe they won't get four zillion CVs. Uh, actuarial services, financial management, assets and liability management, information technology, strategic uh, leadership, investment, legal, and so on. Um, do you think... Cloudy <laughs> Matsuhane. He does not fit any of them call, right? Lucania, <laughs> are you applying or are you going to yeah. stick to uh, your day uh, job? No, I was going to possibly... But he's not here. I was going to possibly say our colleague Sigonati would be a perfect candidate, <laughs> but, but, but he's not here. But it's interesting what you're saying about skills. I mean, my, my, my memory might be, might be failing me because I was out of the country at the time, but I still remember reading an application or advertising for ESCOM CEO, and he actually said he didn't need to know anything about, about electricity. Uh, I, could, I, could, I could be wrong, I, I, but it was an SOE, but, but, it might not, but my actual example might be wrong. 
because it's, it's from faded memory from when I was away. But, but, but I think that what, what Ron is saying and what Ray is saying about the, the sort of the change and the change of tone, the appreciation that you actually need people who are actually skilled in these jobs rather than people who are there to be deployed or to serve particular interests. Kalisa, are you a candidate? And, and, and if you look at what's going on at the SOCs, would you, would you want to be there? I think it's only a space for the brave, um, Hillary. But speaking to the advert, I think it's a symbolic break with state capture. Because 2007 was all about, you know, the plunder of SOEs and how they had been used as a playground for Jacob Zuma's friends. And now it's almost, we've passed that point and it's now everybody's welcome to come in. It's no longer going to be the playground of a select few people or a select few beneficiaries. And it's also a symbolic break with the patronage network. I also think that it might be an electioneering tool. You know, it's the year of um, big political gestures because we're building up to an election year and the ANC has to have some sort of a good story to tell its voters if it's to go to the polls next year. But getting to the details of, of the dysfunction, if you like, you look Kanyo Business Day's front page story today, uh, the money that it now turns out South African Airways needs is 21 billion over the next three years. Now, where is the money going to come from and should we keep pouring it down the same kind of black hole? I know it's interesting, this, this sort of comes up, we, we never seem to really ask the big questions, like, I mean, should, should the state even be owning an airline? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it's maybe it's traditionally they used to, but how many states actually do that nowadays? I mean, if you think of the big ones, BA, they've been privatized years and years ago, and they're actually quite viable international big organizations. And as you said, I mean, people also forget that there is a cost to this. It's not just 21.7 billion, or that, that goes to SAA, it's also 21.7 billion that's not going into education, that's not going into all sorts of other things that, 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 that are much more crucial for government to do than to run an airline. So maybe, the, maybe this picture needs to, this debate needs to go a bit further than actually the money and talk about what is the core competence of the government or what do you want government to do? Do you want them to, to provide education? Do you want them to build roads or do you want them to run airlines? <laughs> yeah, Kolisa, given that the trouble is you pretty much have to pay somebody to take South African Airways away, what, what is to be done about this airline? Well, first of all, um, a brief take on the sources of the funding. They say that they want government guarantees. They're also looking for another capital injection from the Treasury. And they're also going to go to the debt markets to raise the funding. Um, and the, the, the one thing that was reported last week was that they were looking for $5 billion. That's actually a bridging facility in order to tide them over as they look to plug the gap um, in their balance sheet. So, you know, when it comes to SAA, it's a tricky one. It's, it's, it's more the sentimentality and it's, it's more of a pride thing and it's more of a vanity project more than anything else because really, like Lukanya says, it's not critical to the functioning of the SA economy, even though they'd like us to believe that. I, I, I think Ron, Ron is going to come I, in here because <laughs> as I recall, Ron, and, and you, yeah. can, you can talk yeah. us through us, yeah. one of the problems, I mean, so, so that is, is South African Airways effectively holding the sort of the country to ransom because if it defaults mm. on its debt, mm. that cascades through all the other SOE yeah. Uh, yeah. So, SOEs. So yeah. we have to save SA until it's in a, it's a, a viable position where just they can... talk us through why that is. Uh, with with the, the debt for, uh, situation it is, if SA doesn't meet its debt, so there'll be the cascading effect, as you say, about other SOEs. If, if SA suddenly can't, cannot pay back its, 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 its debtors, right, then it, it falls onto the states and there will be a cascading effect. So SA is like an ugly anomaly, but we have to, to fix it. But Speaking to the long-term thing, you know, I keep thinking of SAA and saying, okay, fine, do we need this airline? Should we just dump it and get rid of it And uh, at some point? I'm, I'm of the view that maybe we, we shouldn't. Uh, it's strategically, I'm kind of thinking, 
you let go of it. South Africa, Johannesburg shouldn't be a hub uh, to anything. Where we are in the world, right? The bottom of Africa. There's no viable reason why we are a hub. But the reason why we are is because we have SAA. And SAA flies these long routes to China and New York, and hence the continent flies to Johannesburg. And well, so there's some economic benefits. So this 21 billion rand, there has to be some, beyond it, not, not going to education, there has to be some economic benefit to the country by having the SAA, SAA as, a, as an airline. But they're and cutting routes, right? so, eh? Sorry, they're, they're cutting, cutting routes. routes. Yep. <laughs> which is, becoming, which is, is it becoming less which actually, than which it is actually the be. problem with SAA, like when you cut these routes is when, you when you're killing it. SA should carry on flying to, to Beijing as expensive as it is for, the, for that uh, same reason. So maybe the country must have, let's give SA a mandate and say 1%, um, a margin of 2%, whatever the case may be, this is your parameters, operate here and we'll, as a country, just beg and carry carry this way. Because if you look at the continent, whereas, I mean, like Swiss Air or BA can, the, the governments there can decide we're going to privatize all our airlines because there's so much competition there. There's so so many airlines flying in Europe and and America, Africa. Oh. If mm -hmm. if South Africa is not flying, SA is not flying on the continent. Emirates will. Yeah, Emirates. Emir <laughs> but even then, like <laughs> the the scale of of, of flying w w within the African continent is kind of pretty. Even the, some there's an awesome map I saw with all the flights flying across Europe and those across across Africa. There's no no one really flying here. I mean, you mentioned competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look, you may you, you, you compare it to Europe. I mean, if you look over the years, mm -hmm. how many like abiding airlines have actually been totally killed by the subsidies but that we give to SAA. Two. So 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 I'm not sure whether the, the, the idea that oh there's, there's, there's so much competition in Europe therefore mm. they can privatize mm. actually works. Mm. Because it might just be because there's not enough competition yet maybe that we can privatize but, but but we can facilitate competition. Yeah. But but if we keep subsidizing one big thing mm. and it means there's no space for other people to come in and start new I think uh, like viable airlines. And I think SA for me SA maybe we should like if if Escom was doing well, if other SOEs were operating as they should operate, then SA would be like an irritation that we could carry. Um, um, but the problem as but as the problem as is because said, as you said, right, is yeah. that others are all the in others this whole dysfunctional. So Ray, that SA is yeah. like an urgent. Ray Hartley, do you think the will uh -huh. is there? to make the decisions because well, at yeah. SAA presumably we don't want to give them any money if they're not seriously going to restructure whatever that means but as as as, as Ron says all the others or not all the other, in fact all the others are sort of uh, dysfunctional in one way or another whether financially or in terms of deep corruption that that's emerging at Transnet um, Eskom you know really on the edge as well mm. now Pravin Gordon saying he's going to clean it all up, he's going to put decent governance in. Is the will there to make the decisions that are well, that need the, to be the made? Well, this is the million dollar question with the Ramaphosa presidency, because his core constituency, remember, rewind to before the ANC conference, is the trade union movement and the left within the ANC, very much so. And to make any restructuring decision that's going to result in efficiencies that that lead to job losses is going to be very difficult because it's going to become a political football, um, which is why probably cutting routes, you know, and that kind of thing is going to take place. But I mean, one of the things about SAA is that it has many more times more employees per passenger than any of its rival uh, airlines. The same, in fact, goes for ESCOM, which its own chairman, I was reading, said, told Parliament that Eskom too had many more employees mm. per unit of electricity than most other power utilities I mean, I, in the world. So we're talking. By the way, is why I think yeah. that it would be very easy, in fact, to find a private partner or owner for SAA, 
because you can see how easy it would be to restructure it quickly into something much more efficient. Totally, uh, Ron begs to differ. You no, know, like getting an uh, investor. I was all I was, ga- was gung ho on it. The same with, with Telcom. Remember, we once we were selling twenty percent to KTI, and that was the plan with Cal- Telcom. There, but when you do that, it gives that, that uh, an airline would come into SA like uh, Emirati- Emiratis or the other rest. They'll move the hub to their country. So you instead of flying directly to to London, you'll find South Africans having to fly to Doha and then to London. So it's almost like the competitive, yeah. adv- it's a competitive advantage we have. It's all like the vehicle industry. But I mean, While we keep it, it's, almost it's an expense. Yeah, but that can be conditional. I mean, you can change conditions. We, 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 <laughs> we privatize the steel industry. Okay, with ArcelorMittal, conditionally give us cheap steel. From day one, there's no, no cheap steel in this country. Um, so well, somebody I should have enforced the agreement. Colleagues, so you, you, you were going to sector. talk about ESCOM or Transnet or one of the many dysfunctional SOEs we Yes, um, we were going to talk about the fact that, you know, um, there's this clean sweep that's, you know, going about um, in SOEs and Pravin seems to have hit the ground running uh, with the announcement this week that he had reappointed Bobo Mulefid as interim board chairman at Transnet. The thing about Transnet that differentiates it from an ESCOM or an SAA is that it's a diversified business. It's got many components to it, as opposed to just one line um, of revenue. So, you know, even though the one division at Transnet, which was in charge of the locomotives, messed up that deal, there are other components to it which are well-functioning. So it does kind of bode well for them that they are buffered in some aspects, whereas in others they're not. But I question why he would appoint Popo Mulefe and why not perhaps lobby his colleague and transport Bladen Zimande to reappoint Popo Mulefe to the Prasa board where he's needed the most and have somebody else at Transnet, which isn't as big a problem as Prasa is. We're going to take a break and leave it there. Welcome back to Editing Aloud. Not long ago, we were patting ourselves on the back because the rand was the best performing currency uh, in, emerge, in the emerging market universe, thanks to, to Ramaphoria. Now we are not so happy anymore. And with emerging markets crashing, as some predicted they would, um, the rand is taking strain. But Lucanio, not as much strain as the Argentinian peso or indeed the Turkish lira. Um, what do we have to look forward to? Is this kind of emerging market route going to carry on? I mean, in a way, that clearly this sort of shows that we are sort of part of this global village and we're not really fully in control of our own destiny when it comes to these things. I mean, with U.S. rates going up, the U.S. Treasury China yields, what, 3%? And we just cut rates like about a month and a bit ago. So it's not really a surprising move from a, from a, from a purely fundamental point of view. But the point you look at in the bigger picture, like if you look where the rent is now to where it was in December, we're still about 2% higher against the dollar. And uh, I mean, you look, some other currencies have done much worse. So, so like it's not completely gone, sort of Ramaphoria thing, but, 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 we, but we're not in an isolated island somewhere. We, and we do have to compete to attract capital. So if, if, if rates are going up elsewhere, how is it to go up as well to sort of compensate for the sort of greater risks, so you speak? I mean, it doesn't mean there's no consequence, but for one thing, it means we can't be even thinking about it, probably about cutting interest rates, which, which maybe people might have thought two months ago might be a possibility. So there is a price to be paid, but it's not nearly as bad as you said. Like we're not, we're not Argentina; we haven't gone up forty to forty percent in a, in a day. So, so <laughs> always look on the bright side. <laughs> Ron, are you looking on the bright side? Yeah, we are. We, we are. You know, I was imagining now if 
so everyone's emerging markets are, are down right now. So everyone's looking at a specific case of each country and who's actually worse than the others. And we should be so happy we don't have Jacob Zuma as a uh, uh, proxy in government right now. We'll be looking at us differently. So we have Tsaramaphoria in a way helps us from even a worse judgment, right? So now they're looking at Turkey and they have a president who says he's taking over all monetary policy and then like sell, right? And Argentina sell. So we're very lucky that December happened the way it happened. I was just imagining if it was NDZ as our president or anything of the Zuma camp, and this judgment was coming at this very moment, where the ram would be. So actually, we'd be very happy that we had this bout of Ramaphoria that's almost cushioning mm. the judgment for the South African combo. Everyone's looking. Yeah, because, about, yeah? Yeah, because early November, when mm. we, were, we were 14, 15 rand, mm. and if uh, the Zuma camp had won in December, we would have probably been 16, 17. Had not yeah. won, had not and won. by now, where would we oh, be? The Zuma camp had yeah. won, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we might be in, uh, in yeah. out there with Argentinians. We would be like... Mm, interest rates up to yeah. 40%. Exactly. And uh, we, we, we might well be uh, yeah. out there with the Turks, uh, yeah. threatening <laughs> to curb the independence of the Reserve Bank. So yeah. thank goodness, yeah, we can just... Thank our lucky stars. As a matter of fact, you just said it. I'm taking away... I'm No, the you president did. must care about monetary policy. Wow, okay. Fine. Yeah, That'd yeah. Maybe we could be. On the other hand, we are suffering some legacies of, of the Zuma administration, particularly, well, everywhere, but including at municipalities, Kulisa, where um, a whole bunch of them have lost a lot of money on the VBS debacle. debacle. And um, the Minister of Cooperative Governance, William Kise, is trying to do something about it. Yeah, so he's met with the Reserve Bank Governor, um, Liseja Khanyaho, to discuss a way forward in terms of how to recuperate some of the money that the 15 municipalities have deposited with VBS Bank. So they've set up a joint uh, technical working team, a committee that's going to deal with the crisis. They're also, as well as going to meet with uh, mayors, municipal managers, as well as CFOs to try and find some sort of a solution uh, to the problem. Because at the moment, um, SA has about 258 councils. Um, eight metros, 44 district municipalities, and 200 and odd local municipalities, and only 7% of them are functioning properly. And most of the municipalities whose deposits... Only 7%? Only 7% are well-functioning. Uh, most of them are in distress or dysfunctional. Uh, some of the ones that had been performing well over the years are also you know, slipping into that cycle of maladministration as well. So it's, it's, it's an epic crisis because you know, when you look at it from a distance, it doesn't seem as though it's a wider economy thing, but it is. These are the councils that are responsible for making sure that businesses have water. These are the councils that make sure that businesses have electricity. Um, these are the councils that we interface with directly at local government level. So we can't afford to have so much dysfunction and disarray at and that indeed, level. And indeed, the minister also talked about how the extent to which they are not paying water or electricity bills. Right, it, in a sense, it's, 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 it's one thing to tackle a, a, a hand full of very large state-owned enterprises and try and fix the and try and fix them but I mean how do you fix you know 250 municipalities of which more than 90 percent are not functioning well I mean what do yeah. you do about that I mean I think we often look at the high-level politics and think that that's what's determining you know what's going to happen in elections and stuff but actually I think that the dysfunction at local municipality level is probably the biggest thing behind the decline that you've seen in the ANC's um, electoral fortunes nationally. Because you come, you know, you come from your house, your area, your community to vote. And your experience, your daily experience actually dictates how you see government. 
And I think it's a big crisis for them because without turning that around, it's very hard to see how they'll turn the electoral fortunes of the party around. And Ron, I mean, what, what are the prospects for getting municipalities functional again? And, and in fact, given getting provinces functional because we've also this, this past week had uh, national government take over the Northwest, it's the whole uh, province, essentially. This is years. I mean, correcting all uh, the messes, I think, is like decades away, right? Uh, from getting to a point where they actually can get things functioning well. And, and in that time, there's elections to be faced. So it's going to be a massive challenge for the ANC. You know, when we deal, with, as you were saying, we deal with SOEs, like there's, there's a board to go and handle and fix. When it comes to these different uh, uh, local municipalities, this is something that the ANC will take. Actually, whatever government's in place, another 10 odd years to fix. So it starts with this public sector wage negotiations right now, and the KPAs, because that feeds into, I guess, municipalities and how they are run, maladministration. So this is a long <laughs> process, and as long as political parties want to be re elected, it will always affect how fast this, uh, the correction of our local municipalities take place, which is pretty worrying for me. And Ray, certainly the, 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 the battle in the Northwest has been, in a way, a battle for the ANC. Is, is Sir Ramaphosa winning it? Well, I think that what he's doing is playing hardball. You know, okay, so you, because uh, Supra wants to stay on as Premier, fine. You know, um, you're just not doing anything. We're running the whole show, running the budget, we're running procurement. In fact, we're now running the government, is the message that's being sent out there. So I think that. I mean, you've got to remember, I think, that Ramaphosa understands this constitution quite well and knows exactly where power lies. He did write it. And how it can, yeah. exactly. And when he wrote it, by the way, he was widely believed to be Mandela's successor. So he was actually writing it with himself in the presidency in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the, 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 I think he knows exactly which levers he can use and how he can control the situation. The real problem for him, however, is the populist backlash and how does that then play into national elections in the Northwest? Are there going to be protests? Is there going to be call for a stay away? Um, you know, and this could happen in KwaZulu-Natal to some extent. And suddenly, you know, this could be a, could have a, a big effect on the national electoral outcome. Is there any chance that this idea of a local backlash might be a bit overplayed? I mean, I mean, we are talking here about a guy that people are protesting against saying he wasn't delivering. So where's the backlash going to come from? From the same people who are actually saying, we're tired of this, we want more services, and we want a functioning government? I think that's a very good question. Mm. You know, so it'll be a test for, for the Supras. Can they bring out a constituency? I think in KwaZulu-Natal, there is a chance that Zuma would bring out a sizable constituency because there's a large portion of the ANC leadership that's in place there that could, you know, uh, back him and certain structures of the ANC even could be involved. So this is a, a looming crisis for Ramaphosa on, on the electoral front. In the meantime, he's fighting yet another legacy issue, which is the, our favorite tax collector, or, or preferably not, Mr. Tom Moyani, who, who is not going, like, not going gently. Well, you know, I think that they're, they're fighting this like two gentlemen who are very strong-willed and they're fighting it through their lawyers and it's quite entertaining to watch. But I, I will say this though, they've managed to stabilize SARS 
there's a, a modicum of goodwill that's returned now that there's an acting commissioner. I mean, all of the court cases that were surrounding Moyani are dying down. Um, yesterday, uh, SARS settled with Flock Symington, which was a legacy issue of Tom Moyani. So they seem to be settling all of the other minor fires that were raging around Moyani. And then the main one now, you know, is going to go to the disciplinary, where it will be finally decided who will eventually come up victorious. It is kind of remarkable. And how much, oh, how much damage is Mr. Moyani sort of just refusing to be disciplined for, for, for really pretty gross <laughs> alleged instances of, 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 of corruption and mismanagement? I mean, how much damage is this doing, if you like, run to the country? Because SARS has, has stabilized, but yeah. can it move on as long as this is going on? I think it can. Uh, as I say, that almost, you can see SARS is like literally moving on. And this battle becoming between Moyani and the president, it almost moved on. And SARS as an institution seems to be moving uh, uh, along. And just as, uh, but if, if you look at, you know, I keep, when we were sitting here last year discussing, or early this year, when Ramaphosa came into power, how much will he do? He's done quite a lot, like it's quite I many on his roster, on his get of stuff, and this is one of the things we knew he'd do, and we knew it'd be a long to process. Moyani was never just going to disappear, disappear. He's 65, he's stubborn, he's a hard-headed man. He just want to leave under that cloud. I remember in that whole uh, talks with Ramaphosa, he wanted Ramaphosa to shake his head and say what a concerning job he had done in SARS, so, and that was never going to happen. So we knew this would be a long to process. There's many more fights from, for Ramaphosa. His biggest concern now is that there's elections next year, and he's got to be seen to be winning all these fights. Like Northwest, he has to seemingly win it, and does he win it? wearing an ANC tie or like, so these are all the part of the, the battles, of the, the nuance of the, of the battle that he must be seen But to, to add winning. to that, mm. uh, another person facing a hard task mm. is Musi Maimani, yeah. you know, whose party is imploding right in front right of him. Yeah. Uh, you have a sense of control with Ramaphosa yeah. and that he's got, you know, a handle of all of these little issues that are taking place around him. Yeah. With Musi Maimani, you almost get the sense that he's overwhelmed and he's got people around him telling him different things and he has all of these competing interests that he can't seem to manage as party head. And one of which is, you know, the DA's appalling handling of the situation in Cape Town with Patricia DeLille. I mean, it, all of these different narratives that are coming out in Cape Town about the race debate within the DA, about, you know, cronyism in the DA, about factionalism in the DA itself, uh, when you contrast the two, you get a sense that Cyril is a much more astute politician uh, than his competitor, you know, in the Blue Party. Well, Patri the Patricia DeLille saga, which continues this week, um, is, is, is really just humiliating for the DA, surely. If they dealt with Helen Zill when she tweeted that colonial thing, oh, yes. then and hard and immediately, Zill, I mean, uh, Dillard wouldn't have done this. Like, she wouldn't have found the space to play around and just play with, the, with, with DA as a, as a political organization. That's, that's there was, I think, when he, when he lost that chance. Yeah, Ray, know. I'm going to give you the last word yeah, here. I, I, I don't understand why Maimani doesn't just stand up mm. and take charge. Mm. What is it? You know, um, is he going to be fired? Is he scared that he's going to be fired by this committee with all these very fierce-looking people on it? Um, you know, stand up, take charge. Stand Call him into a room and charge. say, I'm the leader of this party. I'm going out there. We're going to... Yeah. sort this mess and out and you guys are all going to get behind me or I'm going to kick your ass. That's all we have time for. Thank you for joining us and join us next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.